Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. All right, this is the Book Riot Podcast once again. This is episode 369, recording on April 9th, 2020. I'm almost sure two of those three dates is correct. Uh, 76% (laughs) chance that I got those right. All told, we are entering week N of this whatever we're going to call this. I was thinking about this too, as we more and more realize the scale, scope, historical significance of the moment we're in, what are we going to call it? Kind of like we never really agreed on what to call the aughts as a number, right? Mm. You know, like it was you know, the teens, I guess we've had now, the 20s is a little bit easier because now we've referred to the 1918 pandemic is how we refer to that. Will be this just be the 2020 pandemic or are we going to call it COVID-19 or novel coronavirus? Um, this is what you think about when you've been in your house for four weeks and you're reading news all the time. Uh, be interesting to know what this, but whatever it is in the future, people listening to the show, I'm sorry we haven't yet named it for the history books, but we're working on it. <laughs> the great distancing. I feel, yeah. I feel like Rebecca, we've entered a new phase of this in the book world. Yeah. Maybe before I even say what that is, do you agree with me? And then tell me what I'm feeling about what this new <laughs> I tell you what you're feeling. I I think I think that we have. It feels um I'm well I'm feeling a couple like I'm seeing a couple different things happen. Maybe you're seeing the same thing. Mm-hmm. We are we're wrapping up week 4 of social distancing here. I think this is actually the end of my fourth week. Folks in New York were maybe doing it a little bit longer where publishing mm-hmm. is based. Um, I think you guys might have been a little bit ahead of us too on Uh the West Coast. Um, It seems like we have exited the place of who knows what's going to happen and entered the place of now we are starting to see what is happening, at least in the shorter term for publishing, where um, sales have dipped enough due to multiple factors that there are many layoffs in many places. Um, mm. The the kinds of headlines that probably are happening in every industry and certainly from the unemployment report this morning um, mm. seem to be happening everywhere. But I do, I think we are entering a, a space of um, like just the news is not going to be good for a while. That's what I'm feeling. Right. Is that what you're feeling? Yeah, it's not going to be good. It's not going to be good for a while, but it's also not getting worse. Like it's probably, again, having never been part of a medieval siege, I'm only um, <laughs> guessing here. But like when the army shows up and first starts attacking your city, it's it's very panicky and, and a lot's going on. But then once you're into the siege, it's kind of boringly bad yes. for a while. Yeah. Um, and I think we're in the boringly bad. Now, if you're struck you know, individually or your local community or you have someone who's working on the front line or so on and so forth. But there's a lot of sit and wait and see how bad it's going to be at this point. Um, and a lot of, at least in the publishing world, the first wave of reactions has gone away, and now there's going to be a fairly slow and steady erosion in the health of a variety of things um, in the books and publishing world. Um, and we're going to, I guess, see how bad, how deep down the canyon the river cuts 
um, for this to some yeah degree. that that seems right to me that we know like what the holes are that we're in and the question is how yeah. deep are they going how to deep? get yeah and right. for how much longer yeah right um mm-hmm. all right before we get into specifics of this increasingly ge- geological metaphor uh, let's do a, a sponsor break today's episode is brought to you by underlined haven't read a Natasha Preston thriller yet. We dare you to try. She's known for her line of chilling young adult suspense novels like The Cellar and The Fear. The New York Times and USA Today bestselling author excels at putting fear into the hearts of her readers. So her newest book titled The Dare is about five friends whose senior prank goes very, very wrong. This is the perfect graduation season read for thriller fans who can handle a good scare. The Dare is now available wherever books are sold. You can learn more about it at getunderlined.com. So again, this young adult thriller is about five friends with a prank that goes wrong. There are dark secrets, a twisty plot, and creepy I know what you did last summer vibes. So if you, you know, it's graduation season, you want to revel in that, but like make it scary. You know what I mean? Pick up The Dare by Natasha Preston. And thanks again to Underline for sponsoring this episode. This episode is sponsored by The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy. Robbie and Trevor Cressmont have enough wealth to ensure they'll never be found guilty of any wrongdoing, even if everyone believes they're behind the deaths of their ex-girlfriends. Let us all take a collective angry sigh at that. Lauren O'Brien, the new girl at school, has a dark past of her own, and she's desperate for a fresh start. Except when she starts a relationship with Robbie, her chance is put in jeopardy. During what's meant to be their last weekend together, Lauren stumbles across evidence that might just implicate Robbie. And after a third death rocks the town, she must decide whether to end things with Robbie or risk becoming another cautionary tale. This is an edge-of-your-seat YA thriller that's perfect for fans of Karen McManus and Holly Jackson. Make sure you pick that up now wherever books are sold. And thank you once again to The One That Got Away With Murder by Trish Lundy for sponsoring today's show. A lot of continuation of things we've mentioned um, before. I, I guess the structural pieces we were waiting for those dominoes to start to be affected. And mm-hmm. maybe at the very basic level in the world of books, it's the the physical books getting from where they are made to the people who bought them and what the, where those cracks are going to be. So Barnes & Noble, two stories related. One is we talked last week that 400 stores had closed. It's now up to 500. Now we've also furloughed some corporate employees. Um, I don't know if this eventually will get to eventually all stores are closed. There's only a couple, there's only a hundred or so left. I can't even imagine where those places are that are actually open right now. Seems weird to me. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. And I think the ones that are open have limited it to where the number of customers who can be in at any time is no more than 10. Um, And they're still offering curbside pickup in some locations, but I, I, yeah, I don't know. It must be in places where bookstores can squeak through as essential. Or one of like Florida or some other places that have or Missouri, sure. I think, yeah, that there's maybe only, don't what, like, haven't. Yeah, have a state home states. order. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that's one tightening of the supply chain, just on the store level. Even then, Barnes and Noble had a story that made the front page of CNN. Um, mm-hmm. I noticed that five Barnes and Noble's warehouse workers in New Jersey were diagnosed with COVID nineteen. Um, it doesn't say here, I don't think, unless I missed it, Rebecca, that they actually are closing that warehouse or other warehouses. 
Um, but in my experience of watching other companies have this happen, it's only a matter of time before that warehouse or maybe all the warehouses are closed. We saw also seen an Amazon, um, a bigger fish, frankly, a, a much bigger fish in a bigger pond, but affects this particular pond greatly. Having some workers test positive, some shutdowns, some labor unrest, whether or not they should be there at all. Um, I don't know how long they can hold out in a lot of these places keeping these places open. I don't know. Yeah, the Barnes & Noble uh, warehouse in Monroe, New Jersey has approximately 800 people who work there and employees there are protesting, demanding a two-week closure of the warehouse with mm-hmm. paid time off and full disinfection of the facility during those two weeks seems especially called for given that it's either five or nine people who have been diagnosed with COVID, depending on what the, what the source is there. They're also asking for hazard pay along with better safety protocols and personal protective equipment, which reasonable demands, but also hard to come by the PPE Mm -hmm. these days, especially in New York and New Jersey. Um, That protest was organized by um, Movimiento Cosecha, the warehouse workers stand up and the laundry district and food service joint board, which is a union, um, along with Workers United. Um, I think it's becoming increasingly difficult to make a case for keeping warehouses like this open um, and Mm -hmm. have it be understood or um, well received by the public. I think we are, if we're not already in the place, we are rapidly approaching the place where keeping your warehouse open is a bad look. Um, especially when you've had folks who are sick working there and potentially yep. infecting other people. If you've got five to nine people now who have been diagnosed, they could have been asymptomatic for a few weeks. Mm-hmm. Who knows how many other people were exposed? Not to mention then the like sort of follow-on fears of what if they touched the books that I ordered and do I need to disinfect my things that come from Barnes & Noble and all of sort of these chain reaction things that are connected. Yeah, it's it seemed to be a, a a big ask to have someone come into work where they know there's been, you know, more than just a, one or two infections to ship out Dogman Seven to people. That's a very yeah. tough ask to me. It seems to be, um, yeah. So Barnes and Noble, I don't know. I, I it doesn't feel to me like there's much chance that a lot of the warehouses are going to stay open for the duration. I think it's just a matter of time with those. Something that I didn't know was a matter of time. Um, that happened maybe a little quicker than I thought. I'd be curious to hear what you think. Mm-hmm. McMillan lays off some staff, cutting some salaries. My mental model of this was that books wouldn't be hit as hard as other places. Larger corporations have probably a better cash situation, um, that they could continue doing a lot of the work they already do. Print sales haven't been down that much, like 5%, 6%. Is that big enough? They might, are they, do you think they're seeing something we're not seeing? Does this indicate something that I don't understand? What was your reaction to seeing that Macmillan was laying off people and cutting salaries really pretty quickly into this cycle? Yeah, I also thought it was much earlier than I was expecting to see layoffs in publishing in particular because we haven't seen the numbers for sales dip in a like in a big long-term way. And my, I don't know, my spidey sense about it is that it's, and this is just a guess um, that it, in case Spidey sense didn't tip you off, um, is that 
it's not so much that right now is a problem, but that people have started that like corporate executives have started doing the math of if this continues, and we don't know how long it's going to be. And especially given that they're in New York, um, most of these companies are in New York, I think it must be really hard to see outside of how overwhelming the situation is there like you know if this goes through august um what's going to happen to our company and my guess is that they took preventive measures sooner rather than later Mm -hmm. like the goal right is to have a business still when this is over um so you probably don't want to wait until the very last minute um, and then have to make really drastic cuts um I mean, this is these are still very this is still big stuff, Um, meaningful salary cuts, a meaningful number of layoffs. My guess is that they're doing it like sooner rather than later, Um, save as much money as they can right now, try to be viable when Mm -hmm. this is over. And also, if you do go ahead and lay people off, they're able to claim unemployment and, you know, take advantage of the different services that are available rather than sort of being dragged along. Um, I don't I don't know, it worries me that we've seen it already. And so I think maybe my Um, spidey sense slash wishful thinking is that this is a sign of prevention, um, trying to mitigate damage or minimize potential upcoming damage rather than responding to like, oh, we've already had two really low weeks in sales in two weeks. I don't want it to be true that like two low sales weeks is enough to do a publisher in this battle. Yeah, right. And you're intimating that, well, they've seen two weeks of data and they're modeling a couple, probably like a lot of us who've seen models of infections Mm -hmm. or death rates. They may have their own modeling for cash and there might be a meridian that they see as a possibility, maybe not even a likelihood, but it's certainly possible that if they, they make these cuts, their chances of not hitting that meridian, which I don't know what it would be, that called the viability of the company into question, or they have debt or some other thing that they don't want to hit, um, that over several months, you know, three-month window, this actually does make a difference. It says it's been, it will be implemented through June. Also, a weird amount of certainty, <laughs> right? Yeah. Say. Um, I feel like... If I were one of these people getting my salary cut in half, I would not believe that on July 1st, my pay is going back to to where it would be. Um, Also, they've, it's a graduated cut. So people making 60,000 or less will not see their salaries affected. Then a couple more tiers. Um, Mm -hmm. Senior executives who make more than 250 are going to see a 50% reduction. I think that's reasonable um, and makes a lot of sense. Also, relatedly, um, they're shuttering Thomas Dunn, which was one of the major sub-imprints. I guess not a sub-imprint, an imprint mm-hmm. um, of Macmillan. This is the kind of thing that probably was going to happen anyway. Um, the f- Tom Dunn, who was the founder of the press, who'd been with Macmillan since 1971, is departing. It sounds like there was a exit plan for him, maybe retiring, shuttering the imprint, rolling the, the, the staff into somewhere else or just not continuing the press probably a good time to accelerate those kinds of plans if it was on the horizon um 50 years of work at st martin's and mcmillan got to be a tough way to go to see your sunsetting you know fare thee well retirement um subsumed in a macro terrible where you don't get to have the you know, farewell tour, right? You're not going to have the big party at McMillan probably that they would have had. Yeah. You don't get to have your fanfare. um, Yeah. Which is again, in the grand scheme of things, not bad, but also lamentable um, in its own way. We talked before that Scholastic um, had initiated similar kinds of uh, reductions and understand. And I think I said that 
I'm not surprised, and he was anticipating mm-hmm. Scholastic since so much of their sales is school, library yeah. related. Um, those kinds of people are really getting hit hardest the first when it comes to the world of books and reading. Um, I no, since this came out, so this was April second, so it's a full week later now since we first started this. I wasn't in time for our last week's recording. So far, we haven't seen any other big publishers do this, or even the next tier, the Workmen, the Source Books, um, other groups like that. We haven't seen or heard. Doesn't mean they haven't happened. It could not be public knowledge at this point. Mm-hmm. Could be it's happening at levels that wouldn't leak into the press or be announced. Um, again, tough year for Macmillan. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, all right, we have another Macmillan story, but we'll come we'll come back and talk about that uh, after a sponsor break. Today's episode is brought to you by Greenleaf Book Group. No summer vacation should be without a great read, and I don't know about you, but I am partial to mysteries and thrillers for my hot month reads. It's hot girl reading summer always over here. And from the award-winning librettist of Legally Blonde, the musical and the screenwriter of Freaky Friday, Heather Hawk, comes the page-turning psychological thriller, The Trouble with Drowning. So when author Eden Hart floats into Tucson's Antigone books and all her dazzling perfection to give a reading, Kat, a struggling writer, can't help but compare herself. Thankfully, Kat's life starts to take on its own Eden-like glow when her literary future takes shape and she falls madly in love with Jacob. As demons from her past begin to surface, Kat's mental health craters and this halcyon dream slips through her fingers. For the fastest paced slow burn you won't be able to put down, be sure to check out The Trouble with Drowning by Heather Hawk on Amazon or your retailer of choice. And thanks again to Greenleaf Book Group for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters. Troubled Waters is an intimate portrait of two generations, a granddaughter and a grandmother, coming to terms with what it means to be family, black women, and alive in a world on fire. In heartfelt lyrical prose, Mary Inez Hegler weaves an unforgettable story of the climate crisis, black resistance, and the enduring power of family. Narrated by Janice Abbott-Pratt and written by climate justice writer Mary Anise Hegler, the Troubled Waters audiobook is available everywhere May 7th. It follows Corinne as she plans to stage a dramatic act of resistance and peels back the scabs of her family wounds and puts her safety in jeopardy. Both grandmother and granddaughter must bring their unspoken secrets into light to find a path to healing. Known for her essays that dissect and interrogate the climate crisis, drawing heavily on her personal experience as a black woman with deep roots in the South, Mary Anais Hegler brings us her first work of fiction titled Troubled Waters. Make sure to pick it up. Thanks again to Harper Muse, publisher of Troubled Waters, for sponsoring this episode. Okay, I guess in a good news, a, a good PR and a good thing just in general for Camilla. You want to tell me about what's, what's yeah, this next? Yeah, and this story? is another one that it's a bummer that it gets buried in exactly I in totally this agree. moment, yeah. but on the heels of the. I'm going to assume that these are at least semi-related events on the heels of the um, controversy around American Dirt and all of the feedback that Flatiron received. um, One of the things that they committed to was increasing the representation of Latinx people in their workforce. And it looks like that is beginning here. Um, Nachielo Nieto, who is an editor and former program director of literary awards at PEN America, is joining Flatiron as an editor at large to acquire upmarket and literary fiction nonfiction 
fiction and YA that focuses on work by Latinx and um, Black Indigenous people of color. Um, so talk to me about upmarket because I think that's maybe relevant for this. Yeah, I think upmarket upmarket matters here um, because upmarket and liter like when you put those together, upmarket and literary fiction is code. I th- I think functionally for the kinds of books that book club ladies buy, um, or the kinds. Oh, of- you think so? I'm not sure. I would. Okay, that's interesting. Maybe my definition is wrong. But continue. Yeah. Well, so there's. Uh, well, I think it gets lumped in with literary fiction. Um, yeah. But upmarket to me, I'm going. I think it implies selling to like s- stories that are sold and marketed to readers with like a certain amount of, you know, socioeconomic privilege and access, mm. um, which are the readers that like all of the big book club sort of things pander to. Um, if you're doing, if you're acquiring those kinds of books, um, which I think Flatiron wants to do and Flatiron does largely acquire things like that, that are that are literary, that are good stories, like it's commercially appealing and also um, critically acclaimed <laughs> or has the potential yeah, to be like, like there's craft thinking, and business. What were you thinking? The, the kind of book that could win a Pulitzer, but also sell 250,000. Yeah, yeah, totally, totally. Yeah. Maybe upmarket could also be something that wouldn't sell 250,000 copies, I guess, too, right? Like, sure. Midlist and upmarket are almost synonymous in my mind, but mm. mid, like, midlist is a subset of upmarket. It's not, you know, um, synonymous with it. But yeah, it's it could win an award. Um, it could be a bestseller. I guess the crossover would be, it's kind of one of those you have to, maybe there's people that know it way better. I'm sure there are people that way know it, but my earned experience senses that like Jennifer Weiner, for example, is commercial, but not upmarket, though she could sell. She's not going to win a Pulitzer Prize, rightly or wrongly. I'm not saying it's fair, but I'm just saying that's the space she's in. Whereas Jennifer Egan is Mm -hmm. upmarket. Yes. I think Um, upmarket is like a mix of commercial viability and craft. Yeah. Lyane Moriarty is not upmarket, but, uh, uh, what's her name that wrote The Nest? Um, oh, Cynthia uh, Dupree Sweeney. Is that at market? I think it is. I think, yeah, I think it borderline, is. Borderline, borderline? Mm-hmm. American Dirt? Was that meant to be at market? I think it was. Yeah, I think it was. Yeah. Um, just to give people a sense, because yeah. it's a term of art, but I think it's a, one of the most fascinating things for me as I've done this, whatever you call this over time, is those interstitial genres. Like they're between, they're on the line between a couple things. And they tend to be the kind of things that can be very lucrative all the time. Across, mm-hmm. Something that cross over from one, um, uh, one, I don't know, one place to another means they can sell to both of them, but also maybe sell beyond them, right? Like very yeah. hardcore genre stuff tends not to break out. But something that can verge like Crazy Rich Asians with a romance, but also then verges into commercial fiction. And maybe in a world could also be upmarket in its own way. Maybe not slightly how it was marketed and things like that. Um, those kinds of blending and bleeding over tend to be the most interesting things for someone who's not interested in any particular genre. Yeah, I think that's true. Where like pure scare quotes around the word pure, pure literary fiction is the kind of stuff that like you could win a Pulitzer for, but is not going to usually sell gangbusters. But then you have stuff like say like such a fun age. That's a great Mm. novel that tackles social issues. That is like tons of commercial potential there and is selling very well, but also there's craft and good writing and yeah. Yeah. Weirdly, weirdly people get, 
I think people get more excited for those kinds of books rather than just the ones that sell a billion copies or the ones that just win awards and don't sell. Like kind of the white hot like Venn diagram of desire on many publishers would be to do both, to get the to get the banana and the ice cream. <laughs> yeah, I think time, it rings right? both of the both mm-hmm. of the ego bells that writers want to have rung as well. Like it's both kinds of validation. You earn a lot of money and you get praise for the quality of your work because there are certainly ways to earn a lot of money and be widely read but not be respected for your craft. And we see that happen with Jennifer yeah. Weiner all the time. She's been very vocal about the experience of that. That like, yes, she has sold millions and millions of books, but the thing that she really wants is validation by the like critical establishment. And then there are folks who get the critical validation but don't sell commercially. Um, and mm-hmm. they're not out there in front, like complaining about how they wish they sold millions of books, but it happened. <laughs> well, I'm sure they would if enough there. people read yeah. their books for people to listen to them. <laughs> I mean, that's the, that's the other, that's the other, I'm not, I'm right. not, I'm saying that it's jokingly, also, but I think it's yeah, true. It's also somehow like it's, um, you know, the social positioning of this all is so interesting and weird. And this is a rabbit hole we're going down. But like, mm-hmm. it's somehow more socially acceptable to acknowledge that you've sold millions and millions of books, but that you mm. crave validation for the value of your art, than to get the artistic validation and be like, this is nice, but pay me. You know, mm. yeah. we just it's uh, interesting, yeah. too, that we've been doing this long enough that at the early days, it was uh, Weiner v. Franzen was like, he gets to do both, but I only get to do one. I only get to sell a bunch of copies. Mm-hmm. He gets to sell a bunch of copies and win the awards. Well, now, who would be the, an- who would be the antagonist to that? Because Franzen's gone. I mean, he's not yeah. relevant, frankly, in a real way. Yeah, and look, like I think we talked about this before in a different context. Maybe we're doing the books of the decade. Celeste Ng is, oh, she, yeah, yeah. she now, mm-hmm. she hasn't won the Pulitzer, but you could see her next book winning the, no- the National Book Award. You really could. Straight up honoring of literary fiction as the thing that you should aspire to be um, or as the height of um, as the height of achievement as a writer has really declined in the last decade and I think so much of that has to do with the internet and the validation Mm -hmm. of genre as like that genre fiction is just as good and artistically valid and viable as literary fiction is and that you don't have to write the kinds of stories that Jonathan Franzen wrote about to be a capital A artist yeah do you think that undercuts Weiner's complaint at all I mean I I think it was fair to say well there's a certain straight white dude that gets to do both and other people don't now that it's not that as much mm -hmm. anymore I wonder I wonder how she feels about it these days yeah I um (laughs) I am not so curious how she feels about it but well in the abstract in the abstract people (laughs) like that or that that kind of sensibility I wonder if it's changing yeah I think the existence of folks like I think Celestine I'm glad you brought her up is a perfect example like poster child of what upmarket Mm. and literary fiction like what that sort of intersection looks like but if Celestine can sell millions of books and have critical praise and you know, TV adaptations and Jennifer Mm -hmm. Weiner has had lots of movie adaptations. Like then it comes back to, there are some books that are commercially successful that just aren't going to be deemed worthy of 
critical praise for the quality of the art and like i think that's okay too not everything has to aspire to be high art Um, right (laughs) you know like maybe you just want to be bubblegum pop and that's fine the world needs bubblegum pop too like i was listening to the backstreet boys yesterday like we need that in our lives but the tension arises when it's like well i don't want to just be seen as bubblegum pop i also want like i want my millions of dollars and critical authority Mm mm-hmm well, to circle way back to the, yeah. this, this story that this, yeah. Darian, I wanted to put a pin on upmarket because I think it that is a sign of seriousness yes. because those are the books that a lot, you'll pay a million dollars for a debut author in that space mm-hmm. when there's virtually another other space, right, that you'll pay that yeah, kind of I money think for. That's a good signal word here that this is not potentially not just a move to, you know, have mm-hmm. better inclusivity and diversity among their staff at Flatiron. But if you are hiring more people of color and you're giving them money to acquire books also by people of color, um, then that's where the power really lies in right. publishing and in the pipeline of which books get produced is that you need the money to you need the money to acquire manuscripts that are going to be up market so that then you mm-hmm. can get the marketing dollars to promote those books and get those voices out there and have bestsellers by Latinx and black indigenous people of color and then come back and say here's the success and these have been successful so I'm going to go get other books like these and publish them I wouldn't be surprised if within well again the current wherever we're in the time warp loophole, you know, holding pattern of (laughs) sadness that we're in right now at some point in the future and and not before too long, we're going to get a big announcement about a major acquisition by this, by this imprint. I hope Um, so. You know, we, we tracked a couple over time. The the two that stick out to me that we paid attention to when we heard there was a big check written, the first was, or I don't know the first, but, um, yeah, Jesse getting a giant check for Homecoming. Mm-hmm. That seems to have worked out. And she has another book coming yeah. out this year. But then the other book was City on Fire by What's-His-Name, which as you can tell by What's-His-Name mm-hmm. did not work out so great. But that's the kind of space these kind of careers can be made. Yeah, And, and when uh, we wasn't... hear there's a mid-six-finger announcement for a Latinx writer coming out of this imprint, that's a big, I think that's going to be a big yeah. deal because it might I be the first whole... mid-six advance ever given to an upmarket title from a Latinx author. Yeah. Not all Latinx authors, mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, I think that will be a very, yeah. it'll be a very big deal and it'll be good to see. And Flatiron has that money, so. Yeah, let, they do. Let's do it. Um, even though everyone got laid off. or, or <laughs> Flatiron had that money, has some of that money. Yeah. They're saving that money to give to a Latinx author, Rebecca. That's sure. clearly what's happening here. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's do one more sponsor break and then we'll come back. Today's episode is brought to you by Scribner. Weird Black Girls by Elwyn Cotman is a collection of seven stories in which characters pursue their obsessions on paths to glory and destruction, while all around them their worlds twist and warp, oscillating between reality and impossibility. On display throughout is Cotman's ability to reveal truths about the human experience, about things like friendship, love, betrayal, bitterness, all through whimsy, horror, and fantasy. Elegiac in tone, imaginative, and humorous in their execution, the character-driven stories in Weird Black Girls challenge, incite, and entertain. The author's last book was named one of NPR's Best Books of the Year and was a finalist for the Philip K. Dick Award, with reviews appearing in the New York Times, Wired, BuzzFeed, and Locus, among other publications. Definitely make sure to check out Weird Black Girls by Elwyn Cotman. And thanks again to Scribner for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Bloom Books. 
Charming, easygoing, and rich, Xavier Castillo has the world at his fingertips. He also has no interest in taking over his family's empire, but that hasn't stopped women from throwing themselves at him. Unless, of course, the woman in question is his publicist. The cool, the intelligent, the ambitious Sloan Kensington, who is a high-powered publicist who's used to dealing with difficult clients, but none infuriate or tempt her more than a certain billionaire heir with his stupid dimples and laid-back attitude. She may be forced to work with him, but she'll never fall for him because he's a client and that's all he'll ever be, right? Right, girl, like we all know. So just in case you didn't know, author Anna Wong is the best-selling author and book talk viral author of the Twisted Love series, the King of Sin series, Miss Wong, got it going on, okay? Make sure to check out King of Sloth by Anna Wong. And thanks again to Bloom Books for sponsoring this episode. Um, Where do you want to go? A couple of well, things. Yeah, Indie we're sort land? of... You want to go to Indie Yeah, land? we're moving yeah. into Indie Land, I think. Um, interesting and sort of mixed news, I think, out of the world of independent yeah. bookstores as this continues on the sort of down like in terms of numbers size um according to a survey of booksellers from looks like 18 or 19 states that that contributed uh preliminary financial estimates based on their march sales showing how um business was transformed during the first month really of social distancing in march 2020 sales fell an average of 9.4% compared with the previous march and were down 6.5% from february which is meaningful because february is traditionally the month with the lowest sales in independent bookstores mm. so to be down 6.5% from the month that is traditionally your lowest um, is not great. Um, it says, though, despite this is a piece on PW, despite the declines, quick action by booksellers, the ABA and regional associations likely staved off even worse sales drops um, as, you know, stay home orders have become more restrictive. Um, more bookstores have appealed to their readers to stock up on books, um, to purchase gift cards, to do curbside or home delivery, to shop online, do ebooks and audiobooks. And so not all of the stores that participated in this survey had seen a steep drop in sales and even a handful were seeing record highs. Um, one store reported a 1500% increase in gift card sales alone. Mm -hmm. um, the online sales rose steadily to be a minimum of 34.8% of total sales, which is mm, I which think for a an huge Indian percentage. Huge. Yeah, yes. Um, those sales, it says, come at a cost. 20% um, of the respondents just began using the new um, online platform, bookshop.org, during the month. And even though it has generous terms through the company in response to, even though Bookshop is offering generous terms in response to the outbreak, the margins on those sales are 25% below what, um, yeah. what an independent bookstore would earn from direct sales. Um, margins are also lower through wholesale direct fulfillment from vendors like Ingram Direct to home. Um, so even if their margins weren't impacted, just a lot of transition, um, a lot of impact on immediate cash flow um, for mm -hmm. bookstores and obviously a lot of concern there. Um, there's a graph here, percent of staff laid off or furloughed by stores and um, of the stores that were participating, most of them, more than half had furloughed 
25 to 100% of their staff. Um, Again, a small number of stores here out of the whole big picture of Indies, but sales down in general, but overall percentage of sales that's online has gone up. Um, Bookshop reported in Shelf Awareness just this morning um, that they're selling about 8,000 books a day. There are 450 Mm. bookstores on the platform and sales have risen 2,000% this last month with Bookshop raising more than $400,000 for distribution to independent bookstores. Um, That's a big number. But when you think about $400,000 going to independent bookstores and 450 bookstores participating, if they all got an even Two grand a pop, right? Less than two grand a pop. Oh, um, 450, 400. Yes, yeah. I'm, sure. I'm not sure what. Yeah, less, yeah, that, yeah. yeah less than $1,000 a pop. And my understanding of the way that it's actually working at Bookshop is that there are two tiers of payout. One is if yep. you're a bookstore that's linking directly to Bookshop for your online sales, you're earning affiliate revenue on those at a certain level. And the other is if you're just an independent bookstore who is like supporting Bookshop in some fashion, you're in the pool and you get a percentage of all of the of all the affiliate revenue from bookshop. So really, we were talking about this on our company Slack this morning. I think like the reason to do bookshop if you're an independent bookstore is that you didn't already have an online robust, a a robust online platform for your sales. And Mm -hmm. in the last month, you realized that you needed a way to sell books to your customers online. Um, This is better than nothing. Certainly, the best thing is having your customers buy directly from you. So like if you're listening to this, and you're trying to figure out how to support your local indie, if your local indie has a website you can order direct from, or if there are still humans in the store that you can call and order direct from, like that's the way the most dollars get to them. Bookshop is, I think, the second next way to do it. And this four hundred thousand dollars going to indies is great, but like a thousand dollars, it's it's not nothing. But also a thousand dollars per store per month is not enough to like keep the doors open or well, I don't keep even a think person. This is per month. This is all the way to January too. Oh, I mean, right, I mean, right, yeah. I think that's, that's a total. Oh, I think you're right. Yeah, that it's. Yeah. Um, it is something, but it's not enough by any stretch to even come close to like saving an independent bookstore. Um, though I think the company, the companies, the bookstores that come out of this successfully are going to be the bookstores that went into it already, you know, well set up for online sales and well connected to their communities. Like, I think that one of the things that is going that this will be a turning point for for independent bookstores is like, you cannot go through a pandemic or an event like this, where you have no physical access to your customers and continue to resist the importance of social media and email newsletters. Um, That the the Mm -hmm. stores who are connected to their communities and in touch with them, when they're not present in the store through Instagram and Facebook and email are the ones who have continued to get support from their communities and who can say, hey, here's where you can buy books from us. Um, So going to be interesting to see how that happens. I think there will be many stores that don't make it out. But the the resistance to um, this is a painful way to learn the lesson about the importance of not just emphasizing we're an independent bookstore and we want people to come in and be part of our community, but you got to use the tools available to you. And when you can't be in person, the internet's really valuable. Yeah, it is. And the uncomfortable truth, I'm not sure if I said this on the show, is that you, you walk through like the best thing to do is to buy it directly from your bookstore. And the next best thing is to buy it through bookshop. Um, because they'll at least get a cut of their participation. I actually think that's not right, Rebecca. Mm. I think the next thing after buying it directly 
is buying it from Amazon and taking the $10 savings and giving it to the bookstore. They mm. would get more money if you did it that way <laughs> than if you bought it through bookshop. Well, yeah, I think, would. I think if that were a thing we could actually be doing, I mean, and maybe it is, like maybe some of these bookstores will set up, just yeah. donate your money to keep us open. We've certainly seen that happen in other situations. Um, but I think of the of the currently existing ways to support your independent bookstore short of just giving them the $10. Well, and some of them have Patreon or um, not Patreons, like membership programs, right? Like maybe, yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you want to middle it. Maybe if you would optimize for maximum utility that every dollar that gets to your bookstore directly is a good. Now, forget about the supporting Amazon. Actually, since books are a loss leader from Amazon, it actually does both. It hurts Amazon for you just to buy books through Amazon because they lose money on every transaction. And you give $10 <laughs> of pure profit to your local bookstore. I think you can have it both ways. You Alter- to, I anyway, mean, ultimately, I think that's one of the uncomfortable truths yeah, about a middleman you could, for independent bookstores say, is that is a truth. Yeah, yeah. And I think alternately, you could just buy a gift certificate from your independent bookstore and then never spend it because they get the cash when you... That, exactly. Yeah. yeah, well, I don't know how they do their accounting. If they're doing gap <laughs> accounting, it shows up as a... No, I'm serious. It shows yeah. up as a debit. Maybe they can write it off after a year. Um Anyway, that's a that's a different wormhole. That One of my big concerns about Bookshop writ large was that situation is like actually the the optimal thing if you want to support bookstores and still buy books um, is to and increase your own utility value that doesn't have an online bookstore is to do this other weird when, thing. That yeah, bookshop I think bookshop really is in a place right now where it's like something is better than nothing. And so for the stores that... Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, but maybe the bookstore... Yeah, like, the, sorry, I think we had a lag there for a second. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And the something being better than nothing, I think is we're seeing it be valuable right now. Um, But I also like, I feel like I'm watching this happen, like with my fingers over my face sort of cringing, because I just don't know how long it's sustainable that consumers in this like in this pandemic moment and in this economic climate are going to be continuing to buy 8,000 books a day from bookshop.org and flooding independent bookstores with orders. Like I think we saw sort of an immediate rush to um, support local businesses. Mm -hmm. And I saw it with local restaurants as well. Um, It's probably happening in tons of other industries too, but that like big rush is not long-term sustainable, especially as in, increasingly people are being laid off from their jobs or seeing their salaries cut and are being economically impacted where luxury items like books are going to be one of the first things to go from a lot of people's budgets. So I like I hope that these indies that are seeing gangbuster sales continue to see them. I don't think it's reasonable to expect it. No, it's really it's like a Berlin airdrop. Like you can do this for a little while, you know, and get you through maybe till the other side whenever that comes. But this isn't sustainable. And I'd be curious to see if people who bought through Bookshop during this crisis are going to go shop through it more than they would. Like, how, what's the retention rate going to look like um, mm. in two, three, six months? Like, Christmas time numbers, what are they going to look like? I'm gu- I guess if there's any silver lining for bookstores that this didn't happen in November and December. Right? <laughs> um, yes. I mean, probably the best time of the year for it to happen. It's not the summer. It's not the fall. It's not right after the first of the year when people are coming in. Um, so maybe there's a little, I mean, it's hard to say you got a little bit of a break, but maybe if you had to put this checker on some part of the calendar, it might be right around now mm-hmm. um, for a lot of people. I guess on the other side of the independent bookstore ecosystem, uh, Libro FM is hiring 10 laid off booksellers 
for a one-month special project. Libro.fm, if you haven't heard of them, a really good alternative service to Audible um, for your audiobooks. Um, I'm not exactly sure. I didn't look too much at the, what the project really is. I would guess Libro.fm is in a position... Of, of relative strength, all things considered for this moment, since it's digital, people trying to support things other than uh, and the Amazon-owned Audible mm-hmm. um, at this particular moment. But if you are a bookseller who is looking for something to do um, and you know you're not gonna, you're not making a career change, you're not going to look for a Lib- Libro.fm full-time, kind of an interesting idea to how to use this moment with a special project um, when you have Slack in the workforce that might be willing to come on board for a little while. Yeah, there was, um, when I saw... Libro, Libro FM, one of the success stories. I think so. Of digital books and reading yeah. over the last few years. Yeah, they've done really well. Um, and it's a great it's a great platform. Um, there was not much information about what this project is. I poked around and I couldn't find any real details. So I'm interested about what that's going to be and how quickly or not we'll see the like the fruit of whatever the project is, if they do anything mm-hmm. public with it. Um, but it looks now like the applications are closed. Um, so... Yeah. We will be, I guess we'll just be following that. Yeah, um, let you know um, what's going on there um, as we hear about it. So go apply if that's interesting to you, or if you know more about it, or you find out more about yeah, it in the course know. of applying, shoot us email podcast at bookriot.com. Also, um, I don't want to tip the scales, but we do have an early leader for our next book nerd movie club <laughs> selection. Um, got a flurry of uh, votes in this morning after the show went live last night as we're recording. Um, Though it's not it's not insurmountable if people want to get back on the horse, um, the candidates are fried green tomatoes, the English patient remains of the day, Deva Will's Prada and Field of Dreams. Let us know. In our last episode, we kind of went through the contenders there. Um, we didn't say when this would be released because we don't know. That was a question I got. Um, also, if you want to get ahead of the curve on recommendation requests for our, our Mayish kind of episode, we generally do for mom dads. And grads recommendations feel free to do that i don't know what we'll call that i guess mother's day and father's day will still happen and i guess people will still be graduating but you won't have to have um your green eggs and ham uh or uh, oh the places we'll go i'll set up for your for your uh, graduation <laughs> oh, that's gift. a question will oh the places will go still like will that still be a giant bestseller in the second what was half that guy that wrote that wrote go the f to sleep it's like oh the places we won't go <laughs> satirical dr seuss for the pandemic generation but this is some gallows humor here today <laughs> um oh the places we'd like to go oh the places we used to go <laughs> oh, this is very sad um anyway if you'd like a recommendation request for yourself or someone else you can start populating those we'll go in the order we receive them um oftentimes we get through all of them oftentimes we don't so yeah, if you have one you're ready for podcast at bookwrite.com well, how long are we going to take votes for Book Nerd Movie Club? We could take them through next week. Yeah, I what think are we, we can take we them here? through next week. Tax day? Tax day, April 15th, sure. right? A bright line? You got until April 15th to email us for the vote. Um, we'll cut off the recommendation request at some point, but you got a while yet to do that. Oof. <laughs> um, hope you guys out there are doing what you can to take care of yourselves. Um, I, I know it's not easy for everyone we're going to continue making the show um, as best we can uh, if we can we're lucky that we get to still make mm-hmm. the show um, thank you for your kind words for those of you who emailed to say thanks for doing it well you're quite welcome and thank you for listening rebecca i'll talk to you next week about some more <laughs> slowly <laughs> spiraling disaster i look forward to it <laughs> yeah 
at some point we'll start to be more optimistic. I'm not quite there yet, I don't think. Yeah, I think I'm waiting for May. <laughs> May? At least. And don't get your hopes up. I know. Up. Don't get your hopes up. All right, talk to you. Have later. a good one.